Hey guys, this is Naeem, and you've reached the Mosaic Church Podcast. So excited that you're part of our listening community, and I'd love for you to be even more connected. So check out our website. There's more content there, and there's more opportunities for you to get connected in our ministries and events as well. Also, love for you to share this content. If this is blessed to you, I know that God wants to use you to bless other people with it. So share this podcast, if you will. Lastly, would you consider supporting this ministry? This is made possible by other people's generosity, and I'd love for you to pay it forward. Join us to reclaim the message and the movement of Jesus together. So would you consider giving to this ministry? I know that God is able to do immeasurably more through us when we come together. Thank you so much. God bless you. Enjoy. Hello, hello. Mosaic, so good to be with you this morning. You guys, it is November. It is November. We are officially in like the holiday season, right? Thank you for those of you who dressed up last weekend. We had a lot of fun in costumes, brought a lot of joy into this space. And it's going to be Christmas before we know it. Before we know it. Actually, some of you already know it because you put your trees up the day after Halloween. Show of hands. Show of hands. I know some of you did. But let's not forget Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is in there. I am a big fan of Thanksgiving. And I need to know what your stance is on leftovers when it comes to Thanksgiving. Are you a leftover person or are you not a leftover person? Okay, my husband Peter is a leftover person and I am not, and neither are my girls. And I think it has something to do with the fact that he has to cook the meals. So he appreciates it more than we do. That's probably it. He appreciates his own cooking, you know? As I was doing my research this week for this talk, I realized that actually Jesus is the one that invented leftovers. And we're going to get to that in a second. But I think that our stance on leftovers actually points to what we also believe about generosity. Before we get to that, I want to tell you a story. And I am the kind of person that, something to know about me, I like surprising people. I like to surprise people, and this happened last week. I guess you could call that generosity. I ran into a friend, and she had on the best lipstick. It just complimented her face so well. And I was like, girl, that color looks so good on you. And she started laughing, and I was like, why are you laughing? She said, Kristen, you bought me this lipstick. And I was like, oh. Good for me. Okay. That's the kind of giving that I like to do. Just happy little like surprise sprinkles that I can just put into people's lives. Maybe it's friends, maybe it's coworkers. I actually do this sometimes to complete and total strangers. A couple weeks ago, Peter, my husband and I celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary. 13 years. Yep. Might be unlucky for some, not for us, babe. We got it. We got it. 13 more going strong. And so we decided we went out of town and we went to a fancy restaurant. We were like, we're going to splurge and we're going to celebrate. And the way that you can tell the restaurant that you're at is fancy is because the waiters have a secret like hand language. Have you ever seen this? If you pay attention, like the hostess and the waiter, they might walk by and I don't know what they're doing, but they're like, <laughs> like, I don't know, I don't know what it is exactly, but they're doing hand signals. And so that's the kind of restaurant that we were at. And over Peter's shoulder, I noticed that there was a couple with a brand new baby, a brand new baby, like the tiniest little baby. And I was super overcome with emotion, mostly because I love babies, but also I just had this overwhelming sense of wanting to do something for them. Because I remember what it was like when someone gave you a brand new baby and then says, here, take it home. And you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Can I take it to a restaurant? I'm not sure. 
So I told Peter, I was like, hey, I noticed that they already had drinks on their table. And I said, I want to surprise them. Little surprise happiness, right? And so I said, let's send them another round of drinks. But I, so I got the waiter and I called him over and I said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I want you to send drinks to this couple over here, but also give them this message. Tell them they're already great parents and it's only going to get better from here. And he was like, okay. I said, but it's a surprise. Don't tell them we sent it. He was like, all right. So he goes off and he does it. And I'm trying to listen to Peter and have a conversation, but also over his shoulder, I can see them. So I'm kind of listening and kind of like seeing what's going on. I'm getting so excited watching it. Peter starts getting so excited. He's like, can I turn around? You have to see it. I was like, no, you can't turn around. Then they'll know it's us. We can't be caught watching them. So the waiter walks back by. It happens. He does the drop off. He walks back by and he gives me one of these. And I was like, yes, I'm in the secret club. I got the hand signals from the wait staff. I was so excited. But it truly made our night. It made our night. It totally changed the tone of what was already a celebratory evening. Because this is what happens when we give. When we give, it does something within us. When we give without expecting anything in return, it changes something in us. If you've ever been part of surprising somebody with something, you've probably experienced this. In Proverbs, it actually says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. I think this is true. And if you've experienced this, then you're like, yeah, I like giving. I want to be a generous person. But also, giving is hard. Giving is hard because there's a voice in our head that says, if you give that, you're going to regret it because you're going to need this money later. Yeah, 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 it seems right now, but you never know when the other shoe is going to drop and something is going to happen and you're going to be unprepared. You won't be taken care of. And that voice is loud and that voice is real, but I think we need to know who that voice belongs to. See, since the beginning of humanity, we have been believing this lie, a particular lie that what we have isn't enough. This is how the serpent actually tricked Eve and Adam into eating the fruit from the one tree in the garden that they were supposed to leave alone. They had access to every other tree in the garden. And the serpent was like, right, right, right. But guess what? There's more out there and you deserve to have it. You, there's more available to you and you need to get it. And it could be that the same voice is telling us the same message. So that's one reason giving is hard. It's also hard because there's only so much money to go around, right? I'm a parent, so I understand, especially if you're in a family. You don't just pay for like the fees to register for a thing, but then the kids need the right kind of shoes. They need cleats. They need dance recital costumes. We just spent a whole bunch of extra money on vitamins to make sure our kids won't get sick. And now my family's not here because my kid's sick and Peter had to go to the pharmacy to spend more money on medicine. Like what in the world, right? There's never enough money for the things. Plus, you've got to pay bills. You've got to pay your rent. You've got to pay for your streaming services. Thank you, Disney Plus, for another increase this week. Appreciate that. This is, what am I supposed to do with my kids when they're sick? I have to pay for the increased Disney Plus price. Some of you are paying for big things, right? You're paying for weddings. You're paying for college tuitions. You're trying to pay off your own student debt. Giving can also be hard because we justify holding on to it. We call it saving. And saving is not necessarily a bad thing. We can save for vacations. You can save up for a big purchase that you've really been working hard toward. And maybe you set a goal. If we do all of these things, then we can buy this little Prezi, this little present. 
Maybe you're saving for your family's future. All of these things are good. But the reality is that I think we could actually do both. I think we can go to the grocery store and get more than enough of what we need and buy some donations for people who are in actual need. I think we can both pay our bills and save to do the trips and all of the extra things that we want to do and tithe monthly to the church. I think that we can both save and spend while still providing for our families. And there's always going to be an excuse. There's always going to be a legitimate reason why we can't give or be generous. There's always going to be one. So if you're looking for a magic pile of money that's just going to like fall into your lap, that's not allotted to anything else, and then one day you'll be like, we've made it. Here's the money we're going to use to be generous. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. If we don't adjust our pattern of spending, we're never going to be able to tap into that joy of giving. So you're like, great. Got it, Kristen. Here are all these things, but like you just said, Christmas is coming up. Like, read the room, boo. This is not time for a finance talk. This is not the time. Extra cost, presents. But I think that we actually already know how to do this. It's like anything else in our lives. When you're tired, what do you do? You make time to sleep. When you're overworked, what do we do? We take a break. We manage our time. When you're really overworked or stressed out, you take a mental health day or you take that vacation or you tell your boss on vacation, but you're really taking an extended mental health break. See, we make time in our schedules by setting aside days that no one is allowed to mess with and our finances work the same way. If we want to experience that refreshing of giving, that refreshing that comes from generosity, then we have to make being generous a priority. We're going to have to set aside funds and then not touch them for anything else but that. Now, I get that it can be tricky to talk about money in the church or money in the church because we have a very distorted perception. Maybe you have an experience with a church that was corrupt or dishonest with their money. Maybe you grew up with this idea of the generosity gospel that says that God will bless uh, those who have nice, strong faith with health and wealth. God will be, will hashtag bless you with all kinds of things if you pray the right way and you pray enough and your faith is strong enough. But that has also led us to a skewed view of what a blessing actually is. See, I don't think blessings are finances or a certain income bracket. I don't think blessing is getting that car that we wanted. I don't even think blessings are healthy kids and grandkids. If we look at blessing in scripture, it actually says that a blessing is God's favor being poured out on you. A blessing is God giving power to something or somebody so that they can do what they are designed or intended to do. See, there are some things in the Bible that are for us, but not to us. There are things that we read in scripture that are for us, but not to us. And with the prosperity gospel, I think that's where this gets a little weird. Because people have taken promises that were given to the Israelites and applied them to our lives, taken them as our promises instead of something that is for us to learn from. See, the Old Testament religion was very transactional. Even with God, it was very transactional. It was like one for one. If I give, you give. You sacrifice, I'll forgive. You be nice, I'll be nice. You be evil, watch out. I'm going to be evil too. That was the way Old Testament faith played out. But the New Testament way of Jesus was different. In the New Testament way, Jesus gives us everything. 
before we can earn it, before we deserve it, because we neither can earn it nor deserve it. He just gives it to us anyway. That's why we actually changed the series title from prosperity gospel to generosity gospel. Because when Jesus came with this new commandment, this is what it was all about. It was him pouring out lavishly on us. So where the prosperity gospel comes in with a lot of shame and guilt and pressure to do the right things in order to receive from God, the generosity gospel challenges us to accept that we've been given so much that we need to respond accordingly. So we're going to look at a story today where Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, it is the one actually where he invents leftovers. But before we get to that, I want to, um, we're going to look at it a little bit differently today. Have you ever been in a situation where a group of people has experienced something like as a collective, but then you weren't there, you missed out. So they all want to come and tell you about it, but you can't figure out what exactly happened because they're all talking over each other at the same time, like finishing each other's sentence. And you're like, yep, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. Yeah. And you're trying to like piece together the story. That's what we're going to do today with the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's one of the few stories in scripture that is actually present in all four gospels. So we're going to let all of them tell it with the details that they chose to be the most important. So right before we jump in, here's what Jesus has been up to. People are realizing that he is the son of God, but he is also a rabbi. He is also a Jewish teacher. So he has been out traveling from town to town, healing, teaching, being the son of God, doing all of the things that he is meant to do. He has also commissioned, which means he has sent out his 12 disciples for them to go out and also practice doing the things that he's doing and then to come back to him. So they're all out doing all of these holy, important things. And they find out that John the Baptist, who is Jesus's cousin, also the guy who went and prepared the way for Jesus has died. He's actually been killed. And so they're in the midst of doing all of this stuff and Jesus finds out and he's heartbroken. He is in pain. He goes out away from the crowd to process and grieve. And this is where we're gonna pick up the story with Matthew. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. So Jesus is in a boat. He's going from one side to the other. And if you can just picture on both of the shorelines, people just running, running in. They found him and they are coming to where he's headed. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus has major celebrity status at this point. He can't go to the grocery store. He can't go anywhere. People know him. They recognize him. They know who he is. But even in the midst of his grief, he got out and had compassion on them. Mark says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he gets out of the boat and just keeps on teaching and healing. And then Mark, Mark jumps into the story and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were there too. Don't forget about that. Late in the afternoon, the disciples came to Jesus and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. With what? They asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Now, perspective, even if money had not been an issue, this still would have been an unrealistic idea. These little fishing villages where they are probably held about 300 people each. And this crowd has 5,000 men plus the undocumented women 
and children. Most scholars believe that this was actually a crowd of not 5,000, but 10 to 15,000 people. These villages would have never been able to produce that much volume to take care of this many people. Honestly, I think the disciples would have known that. I, I think the disciples would have known that. And what we're likely seeing here is a group of tired disciples. They have also been out doing work and doing things. And I'm guessing that they probably felt overwhelmed in the face of a need that they could not meet. Like, we cannot do anything about this. And so it was easier to just shirk their responsibilities and go, you know what? Somebody else can pay for it. Somebody else will take care of them. So Jesus responds to them. How much bread do you have? He asked. Go and find out. Then they came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Disciples were like, cool, we can make a couple tuna fish sandwiches and uh, not sure what we're going to do with all that. So then Luke jumps into the story. So Jesus goes, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of, see, Jesus invents leftovers. And that's how God generously provided for a great need. Now, if you're paying attention, you will notice that I only read to you from three of the gospel accounts, and I left out John. That is because John is a little different. John is a little bit different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because their synopsis, their summary is generally the same. When you put them side by side, it's pretty much the same story. But John... John's account is a little emotional. It's not chronologically in order. He's a little more interpretive than the other three. And he also adds in details that none of the other three mention. So in John's account, when the disciples realized that all of these people needed to eat, Jesus does something different. Look at this. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for why? He already knew what he was going to do. Huh. Remember, Jesus was a rabbi. And as a rabbi, as a teacher, he was intentional in everything that he did. We can see this when we read through the New Testament. You see it in the way that he uses parables to tell stories, the way that he answers people's questions. He didn't feed every single person that he crossed paths with in his travels. So why this crowd? I think this detail in John reminds us of this intentionality. Maybe this miracle wasn't so much about the hungry crowd at all, as it was a lesson for his students, for his disciples. <clears throat> I was a kindergarten teacher for 12 years. 12 years, and the best lessons that I ever taught were the ones where I tricked my kids into thinking that they were not doing school. The ones that they were not learning, right? If I stood up in front of them and just talked at them and told them a thing, they might get the concept. But if I really wanted to learn them to learn it, I knew I had to get them involved. So there's a strategy called I do, we do, you do. You say that. I do, we do, you do. I do, we do, you do. Okay, let me slow it down for you. Okay. I do. We do. You do. See, now you got it, right? I do. We do. You do. So if we look at this story again, from a teacher's perspective, I think this is exactly what Jesus 
is doing. I think he's trying to teach a lesson. And because it's in all four gospels, it's probably a lesson for us as well. So Jesus starts with I do, right? He models what it is that he wants them to do. That's why he broke the bread and he prayed and he thanked God because he wanted to remind them where this power and where these miracles were coming from. Jesus's entire life goal, his very existence, the underlying lesson in everything that he did was to point people to God and to show people who God was. So he starts with I do. Then he moved into we do and he got the disciples involved. Let's look at Luke 9, 16 again. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and the fish to the disciples so that who could distribute it? They could distribute it to the people. Kept is an interesting word here. It's an interesting word. First, it solidifies the idea that this is a miracle, that the food doesn't run out. And have you ever actually thought about what this looks like? Like, was there just like a baguette and they would just rip off the end and then it would just like regenerate? They always had that crunchy little end there. I don't know. Was it like a, a magic basket? It was empty, like an Olive Garden bread basket. Oh, wouldn't that be great if that never ran out? Every time you reached in, there was another one. I don't know. I have no idea how this actually worked. What we do know is that the food kept being there and the disciples kept distributing it. In a lesson, when you present new skills and you want someone to understand it and you have them do it over and over again, do you know what that's called? Practicing practicing. It's why you make your kid practice piano four days a week in between their lessons. That's why they do homework. Practicing. Practicing is the way that people learn things. And so the disciples are practicing being generous. They're practicing giving. They're practicing providing for the needs of others while they're still there under the supervision of their teacher. And after they practiced enough, Jesus moved into you do. What happened at the end of the story? Luke 9, 17, they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Why? Why? Did Jesus not understand portion control? Did he just like get carried away and not know when enough food was enough food? Hosting and feeding people in the Jewish culture was very important. And it mattered a lot that they did not run out of food for their guests, but also leftovers were considered waste. Having too much food was not a good thing. There was no refrigeration. There were no to-go containers. So leftovers were discouraged. Knowing that, what actually is happening here? Hang on. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many baskets of food? Huh. Twelve and twelve. Remember, Jesus has already commissioned them, sending them out to do ministry. So maybe he's making sure that they all have a lunch. He's packing their lunch to go. Maybe, I don't know. Or this could be Jesus' Jesus's way of saying, you have everything you need. I am going to give you everything you need. I will provide for you and you can do this on your own. Because they did not understand what we know and what Jesus knew, that he was about to walk to his own crucifixion, that he was about to step out of doing his ministry, and the, the responsibility of carrying it on was going to be on the disciples. It was going to be on them without him there. If they held on to those 12 baskets of food, if they held on to the leftovers, it would have spoiled. It would have gone bad. Their only option was to take what Jesus had given them and give it away. 
Now, I think God always has to be a little bit extra, which is why I like him personally. And so God does not stop at, I do, we do, you do. God adds another step, which is that he does. He does. God does. God does show up and provide for us, just like he provided for the five to 15,000 people. God does give us what we need with leftovers so that we can always be generous. God does have realistic expectations. He sat them in groups of 50. All of these details mean something. Why did he put them in groups of 50? Could it be because he knew that was a more manageable crowd for the disciples to go out and do their part instead of saying, hey, you one person, go feed these 15,000. We have to remember that um, God invites us in to do our part in contributing to the people around us and the communities that we're in. He's not asking us to do the impossible. And as he does, we does. We do. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way, does it? He does, we does, we do. As God does, we do. So we respond. We have to decide. Are we going to accept the invitation to join in his miracles and his mission? We decide that we're going to look past ourselves to see the needs of other people, even when our situations are not ideal. We do practice giving, even when what we have doesn't seem like it's even going to make a dent or any kind of difference in of the need in front of us. Because God's job is to multiply what we offer. Our job is to trust him with it enough that we let it go and put it back in his hands. If you're not a generous person by nature, it's okay. You can practice. Or maybe it's that you haven't actually fully understood the lesson yet. Maybe you have not grasped the, co the concept of what you've been given. See, for Christians, being generous isn't actually about money at all. The foundational lesson in generosity is one of response, not finance. We give out of an understanding of the grace that has been given to us. Because God's favor is being poured out on you, so that through you, you can do all of the things that you are intended to do. See, Jesus was Christ. He was God, and he was also human. And I think that we sell his grace, his life, even his crucifixion short when we only focus on it and think of this in terms of our sins. The prophecy of Isaiah says, "'Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering.'" Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He took our pain and he bore our suffering. Yes, Jesus gave his life so that we could be reconciled to God. The grace of God is that we are no longer separated from him because of our sins and because of the choices that we make. But Jesus also took on our pain, the diagnosis, the, the bad surprises, the things that happen to us in our lives, the grief, the things that we have no control over. He took on our suffering so that even in the midst of it, we can be made whole and healed. I think that is a much bigger, more beautiful picture of the grace that is being extended to you, the grace that has already been given to you, the grace that you have to sit back and go, I'm making the conscious effort to receive this. See, maybe I relate to the writer of John the most because of all the emotions and all of the extra details, but it's the humanity 
of Jesus. It's that side of him that shows us that we can trust him, that shows us that he understands us. He's not asking us to do anything that's impossible or that he didn't do himself. Remember, this story happened in the midst of his deep grief. Jesus got tired like we got tired. Jesus was probably weary from traveling like we get weary from driving our kids all over town. Jesus was sad. He was working nonstop. He needed a break. He was grieving the loss of someone who was very important in his life. Yet he didn't look away from the needs of people. He didn't wait until the time was right. He didn't wait until he felt better. He met their needs where he was. And if we want to become more like Jesus, we have got to start doing the same. It's possible to give without an understanding of God's grace, but it's impossible to have a deep understanding of the grace that we've received and not be generous. Second Corinthians says, talks about giving. It says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. Living a life of generosity allows you to do two things. Meet actual needs and point people to the grace of God through the love of Jesus. Both of these things matter. Both of these things matter. At our anniversary dinner, the waiter came back around at the end after we'd paid and done the tip and everything was all settled and said and done. And he came back over and he said, I just want you to know, I've never seen anybody do anything like that before. I've never seen anyone do anything like that before. And I'm so glad that I got to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to remember this. And I thought, huh, maybe the reason that I was so overcome with this sense of needing to do something for that couple wasn't about that couple at all. Maybe it was about our waiter. Maybe it was about him. And it wasn't about what we sent, but it was about the message. It was about showing others how to live a life of generosity, not just to meet needs, but to give cheerfully and joyful expression. Buying a drink for someone is not a new thing. It's not something that Peter and I came up with and we're like, this is going to change the world. <laughs> that wasn't it. But we gave him a message. Those people got to leave thinking someone sees us and someone believes in us. Someone that we have no idea who they are sees us. And that's what that waiter got to do. That's why he was so touched. Now, just in case you're sitting there thinking, cute, cute, no one's ever bought me a drink. No one's ever done anything for me. If you are not a consistent giver at Mosaic, if you are not a percentage tither at Mosaic, you get free drinks every Sunday. It's a different kind of drink, I know. It's a different kind of drink. Listen, I don't know. You put in a little extra, maybe we'll put in a little extra. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm talking about the pumpkin creamer, guys. The pumpkin creamer, okay? But that coffee isn't free. It's not free. Some, it might be free to you, but someone paid for that coffee. Someone paid for the chair that you're sitting in. 
Someone paid for the heat in the air. Someone is paying for the mortgage of this building. Someone is paying for our live stream platform. So people can join us from all over the world, or you can watch from the comfort of your bed or your car when you're not here on a Sunday morning. All of these things have been paid for by someone who doesn't know you, someone that you don't know, but that who sees you and believes in you. Someone who believes that their generosity and their giving could change your life. Someone has given for you. And when we all contribute, when you become a percentage giver at Mosaic, we can do so much more than coffee. We can do so much more than coffee. We've got a gym that we're about to open. There are other spaces in this building. We really want to get the space back here behind us. Not so that we can just have the biggest footprint in this area, but because we want to bring people in and connect them to God. We want to do our part in carrying out Jesus's mission. We want to make sure that we are meeting physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of the people that God is going to bring to us, but it all costs money. It all costs money, and we can't do it without you. We can maybe feed our circle of 50 without you. We can maybe feed our one circle of 50, but unless we all contribute and do our part, there is no way we can provide for the 15,000 that God is going to bring. So what does God want you to do with your basket? What does he want you to do with what he's given you? What leftovers are you maybe holding onto because you're afraid to give them? If you could give them, if you could live a life of generosity, what could God do through that gift? Whose life could be changed because you're willing to let go of your leftovers? If you'll stand with me, I will pray for us this morning. And my prayer is really that you would understand the grace that God has given to you and that you would allow it to shape your generosity in response. Let's pray. God, we thank you for God, just your words in scripture. God, we thank you for these people, these lives that were actually lived and were recorded. God, we thank you for the things that you have said that sometimes are to us, but God, sometimes were just for us and we can still learn from them anyway. God, we can still see your character in these stories, in these events and the things that happen. God, we thank you that we can experience same miracles and the same powers because God, you are still good and you are still working and you are still commissioning your people to go and do the work of Jesus. So God, I pray that you would show us where and what areas of our lives we can be more generous, whether it's opening up our homes to a small group where people can have a safe place to ask questions and learn about you. God, maybe it's being generous with our time and joining a volunteer team so that we can continue to provide MKids for our families. Or God, maybe it is in generosity of finance. Will you help us to learn how to budget, how to look at numbers and things? But God, more than that, will you help us trust you and believe that whatever it is we can give to you, God, you are the one that will multiply it. We don't have to have the answers, God. We just have to trust and take a step forward. We thank you for your grace. And God, I pray that in a whole new way this week, we would be able to recognize and understand how much we've actually been given in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Mosaic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
For more audio and video content, visit us at mosaicchurch.tv.